Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello, listeners. This is Amy Chase. Walter and I met this week to discuss the sixth stage of Joan's heroic journey in which she forms many allies, is put to the test, and outwits a few of her enemies. Walter also regales us with more stories of everyone's favorite braggart, the character of the paladin from Mark Twain's novel. You'll also hear a very personal story from Walter on the decisive moment in his friendship with Joan, which led to a radical life commitment. There's a lot of good stuff happening in Joan's story as the plot picks up this week, so let's get to it. All right. Hello, everyone. Hello, Walter. It's great to see you again. Hello, Amy. It's great to be here. It's wonderful. Well, how how has your week been? Well, it's been very good. Uh, I've been doing, uh, focusing mostly on recovering from uh, my surgery, my surgery, my heart surgery, but it's been a very good week. How about you? That's good. Oh gosh. It's been an exciting week. So um, as, as you know, but I'll mention this for our listeners, I made the decision this week to join a pilgrimage that's happening this summer in June in France to go visit all the sites of Joan of Arc's life and story. Wow. I know. I'm super excited about that. Well, I'll have to live vicariously. (laughs) Uh, through your photos and things like that. Oh, well, you will certainly be there in spirit with me. And uh, <laughs> that is yes, fantastic. Take lots of photos and we'll share it on our website with our with our listeners. So where are you going? Well, the uh, gosh, uh, it's 10 days and we we arrive in Paris and then we'll be going to Domremy. We'll be going to, um, I think the site, we'll go, we'll see the site of Orléans where the big battle um, happened and, uh, and, and Reims, I'm going to have to brush up on my French. Now that's a tough one. I always struggle. <laughs> I just, I just do the English Reims, but. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Reims. Reims. Yes. I'll, if we have any French listeners out there, they're probably just cringing right now. <laughs> so anyway, so that's, uh, that's something exciting and I'm just really grateful. And uh, of course I should always say Lord will. I'll be going on this pilgrimage. Yeah, well, that's just fantastic. I'm so happy to hear it. And I think it'll be wonderful for you, wonderful for me vicariously and and for the, you know, the show and everything. Oh, good. Well, let's go ahead and get to our enchanting moments. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to start this week just because mine are kind of small. But, um, you know, it's also it's also (laughs) good to note those enchanting moments in, in the very ordinary aspects of our lives. Um, so, so I've just got, I've got two, but I'll, I'll say them quickly. So the first one is just waking up in the middle of the night with a rainstorm outside and you're all cozy in your bed and you can hear the rain, um, falling on the, on the window panes and just that sense of coziness and well being. So that's that one of the best <laughs> Rain, rainy, rainy nights with the window open or the, yes, open and the, the window was open. Yes, it is the best. I, I love it, especially here in California because we don't get to enjoy it very often. <laughs> it doesn't rain in California. Right? Yeah, no, not hardly, <laughs> but uh, we'll take what we can get. And then uh, the second one, and you guys are probably going to laugh at me, but I was struck with Marvel yesterday as I was uh, coming back into my little gated complex where I live and uh, at the gate, you know, I press my little remote button and the gate slowly opened in front of me. And I just realized what a marvel that is, what a marvel of technology <laughs> that we uh, we take for granted. And yet, 
just think um, what Joan of Arc would have thought. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, you know, it's it's funny, and, and there, there's I remember seeing in the Economist magazine many years ago, sort of the 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 difference in life over yeah. the centuries, and then the change, and it sort of is like flat for like two thousand years. Like in other words, you live the way your parents lived, and then your for kids live. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, of course, with the industrial revolution and then the technological revolution, it's just exponentially shot up. So we clearly live in a world that is unrecognizable by really anyone yeah. before the 19th century. And but it's so easy, and I, and I'm so guilty of this. It's just so easy to forget. What a marvel and what what a, a benefit to us all this technology is. And of course, technology can and science can be used for good or ill. But just in, in our everyday lives, we really benefit from from things like, you know, air conditioning and refrigeration and uh, modern sanitation. And so oh, I just I just want to try to be thankful for those things and not take them so for granted. Well, and even to do what we're doing now. And most yeah. people look at how oh, we're communicating. So. Yeah, it's a world unrecognizable by most of 99.9% of humanity would not recognize the world that we're in, which I, I think is more profound than we really yeah. stop to think. Yeah, truly. You know, it, we live in this sort of world where we just take it for granted. Yeah. Well, um, Walter, what do you have for us this week? Oh, I had an enchanting. I always have some sort of enchanting. <laughs> point. You know what mine was? I said I made reference to uh, focusing on recovery. Recovery is going very well. As some of you from a previous episode, I had open heart surgery mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago. So they kind of tore it open and got in there and bypass and the whole thing uh, and coming along really well. And the the, the uh, cardio people are very pleased with my progress. But I uh, went out the other day and there's a lake not far from us, about two and a half miles around the lake. And it's been a long time since I've been able to walk around it. Even before the surgery, I was really struggling. And because of my heart, uh, my heart condition and went out there and started to go around uh, with Josie and and we, we got so far. And I just said, you know, I feel like I just got started. And I said, I don't want to talk like some madman or something, but I think I'm going to walk around this whole, wow. this whole way. So wow. I went around and I said, well, for the first time in my life, I went I went the whole two and a half uh, miles. And then um, th- then a couple of days later, I went to spend an hour in cardio. And then went out to the lake and walked around it again. So, oh, wow. you know, the, the it's just been an amazing thing to watch the recovery. But I remember getting choked up uh, about three quarters way around the first time I went around the lake, thinking about the the nurses and the people that helped me when I came out of surgery. Mm. Because there was a moment when uh, I suddenly woke mm-hmm. and I had the tube down my throat and there was a young lady with her face about a foot from mine. She said, here's who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And when I do it, I want you to breathe out as hard as you can. And I did. And um, and it's that moment you realize you made it. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so I, I had kind of a tearing moment. I thought, here I am, yeah. you know, walking two and a half miles a few months out of surgery. And uh, just the support. I mean, the people that the people around you, my appreciation for healthcare workers just shot through the roof. It was always high, but it, shot through the roof. So yeah. that was kind of my big oh, moment gosh. of the week. Well, that's that's wonderful. And I'm happy for you because I know how hard you've worked for that. And I know how much it means just to be able to, you know, go out and walk and enjoy the beauty of God's nature and to, you know, have your wife there. And it's, those are the, the moments, oh. you know, that really make life special. Yeah. And when you see where you were a few months ago, yeah. when it was hard to walk around the house. 
Yeah, yeah, no, because sure. your heart was so weak. Wow. So yeah, what a blessing. Well, I'm sure anyone who has recovered from an illness or an injury can really uh, appreciate that emotion, that that sense of well-being from you know what that you're describing. Thanks to the Lord. Yes, Amen. All right. Well, uh, let's let's begin with our prayer, shall we? Yes. Why don't you lead us in the heroic hearts prayer? Thank you. I shall. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll remind our listeners that that is the prayer of the heroic hearts. And you can find it on our website at www.heroic-hearts.com. Excellent. All right. Well, Walter, uh, let's uh, let's remind our listeners last week when we talked about the heroic's heart journey, we focused on that aspect that's called crossing the threshold. Um, it's when we cross over, when when the hero makes the commitment to go on this journey and crosses over into the extraordinary world. And we had a couple of reflective questions that we used to consider that um, that movement of the journey in our own lives. So why don't you start us out with your question? Sure. My question last week, um, and recalling the story of the paladin, so for those of you who have uh, are up with this in, in the reading, the humorous uh, character of the paladin, consider the somewhat comical comparison between Joan of Arc and the paladin. Let's be honest with ourselves as we reflect. Do we have a little paladin inside of us? Remember, the paladin Ooh. is someone who's a legend in his own mind, and he all talk and no action. Uh, so contemplate where you stand on that continuum. That's a bit of a, mm-hmm. as I mentioned last week, it's a bit of a uh, uh, examination of conscience. Uh, getting real with ourselves. Are we a legend in our own mind, spiritually or otherwise? And how do we really fit in that continuum? Mm-hmm. So that's a challenging question. It sure and, is. And, and by the way, I would point out that, that my own response to that, I think is fa- fairly brief, is my encounter with Joan of Arc, which really began in, in a moment in, you know, about 14 years ago, in a, uh, through the voice of St. Therese and that, and that moment that I had, And, you know, my whole experience has been seeing the paladin in myself, Mm. you know, seeing that part of me that is all talk and no action, that part of me that's a legend in my own mind. And, you know, devotion to Joan of Arc um, through our Catholic faith has been really a maturing of my own self. Um, But but I've, I've had to be honest with myself about you know, that aspect of my life. Yeah. 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 That's such a good question. So that's, that's mine. How about yours? Well, I asked about uh, a time that you've taken a memorable journey and how did you prepare for that? And what were you feeling? Were you excited, nervous? And how did those emotions heighten the experience of your journey? And, and I had, I had a, a, a pretty interesting journey or trip that, that I took, um, when I was in my twenties and I had a sailboat, I actually sailed my boat from, uh, from Florida to Puerto Rico, uh, with a couple of friends. And so I, I was not a great sailor at the time. And by way of preparation, I had to do, I had to learn a lot of things. I had to learn how to, how to care for and sail my boat. I had to learn navigation. I had to learn how to provision, 
Um, and but most of it was really just facing the unknown. And so I guess as as the journey started out, I and I remember it clearly. It was uh, it was at midnight because we we needed to cross the Gulf Stream leaving Florida, and um, so it it was it was truly exciting and and terrifying at the same time. And um, it just uh, even even at the time, I, I relied heavily on grace and and faith to see me through. But I think there was also a, a healthy dose of just kind of the um, confidence of youth. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I think if I tried to undertake that kind of journey today, put, put it nicely. <laughs> I'd have a lot more caution. <laughs> so. Well, your, yours might have been confidence of you. Mine was probably more hubris of of you. Yeah. Uh, that's that's fantastic though, but it does require stepping out on faith. Yeah. And and we do. Um, there, there's always that edge. You know, I know Jordan Peterson talks about it a lot when you when you watch him. He talks about so that edge of chaos. You know that there's there's order and and really to live we have to kind of step into the chaos to continue to pull ourselves um further along and that's what it sounds like well yeah and and on that trip i really did encounter chaos i mean we encountered storms and bad weather and groundings and you know uh not having you know not being able to to get water for the boat and you know there's there's things that daily challenges that we faced and and learned to overcome and it was uh it was it was something that was really formational for me. It it taught me a lot. (laughs) Okay. But let's get to, let's get to Joan's journey. Um, so, so this week in our, in our heroic hearts journey, or, um, as we talk about, you know, what is the traditionally called the hero's journey, it's the stage where our hero forms new allies, encounters new challenges, and has a first taste of the antagonist that they will face throughout this journey. On the internal plane, the hero may be experimenting with how to respond to the new conditions that they find in this extraordinary world. And so we can think of Harry Potter when he first arrives at Hogwarts. Um, he makes his new friends, of course, Ron and Hermione, but he also gets a first taste of his future opponent, Draco Malfoy, his classmate, but then also the, the uh, notorious Voldemort, who um, will be present throughout the whole series. In what we're calling the heroic hearts journey, which is that hero's journey, but on a higher plane, um, in this in this part of Joan's story, we see her, and we're going to talk about this today. We see her win over the confidence of many people, beginning with her faithful knight Jean de Metz, her company of soldiers, and then of course the Dauphin, who is to become king, King Charles II. And she will also have to face two different kinds of opponents. Um, you know, there there's the Burgundian forces and and the English forces that she will um, encounter, um, and there's also uh, the, for the first time, she has to face an intellectual and a theological or a, a spiritual op- opponent when she faces these inquisitors at Poitiers. Um, and we are going to be hearing all about that today. So in our own heroic hearts journey, as we follow along with Joan, this is the stage where we can learn the virtue of fortitude, which is like a, a strength and an endurance when we're being faced with challenges. And we will also it will also benefit us to learn to trust others and to accept our own limitations patiently. Fantastic. Well, the, the reading book two, chapter six uh, through 10, uh, this is uh, fast moving. You know, we're starting, we've been talking up to this point a lot, setting the stage, talking a lot about uh, Jones, uh, you know, her particular goodness, uh, the simplicity of her childhood, We've talked about, you know, the the war that's going on, the Hundred Years' War that we're in the middle of, uh, or actually getting toward the end of, uh, and the civil war in France between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. 
So there's all this mess going on and how, uh, you know, Joan's uh, home of Dom Remy was an island of devotion to France and to Charles and all that. Her, ch her struggles and challenges and her travel then when she finally got her uh, assistance to travel through enemy territory to get to Chinon, where Charles VII, the uh, Dauphin, sits. So that's where we are right now. And so Joan has finally won the uh, benefit of getting to the castle. So up to this point, you know, it's important listeners kind of really see up to the point we've been talking about Joan, the young lady, the, the simple peasant girl uh, who received her call, her voices from heaven, St. Michael, St. Catherine, St. Margaret. And she, up to this point at the moment, she's still Joan, the young lady mm -hmm. who is from Domremy. And by the time we're done today, she will be Joan the maid in charge of the French army. So that that's that's how quickly things move in in this series of chapters. And Mark Twain is giving us several a handful of the key legendary moments in Joan's life. So he did very well to pick out some of these uh, specific um, legendary moments. So that's where we sit. Is Joan is now in the castle, but has not yet met the Dauphin. The, so and, and I think that is, that story is a legend in itself. Yeah. So let's spend a little time setting the scene for our listeners. Well, Joan, if you recall from, from last time, they arrived, they went through enemy territory uh, to, to make the, the trip. So again, everybody's got to remember, you know, Joan's whole mission here is she's got to tell Charles VII that he, she is there to free Orléans and to take him for his crowning, that he is the rightful king of France. And she is the only one who can do this. Mm -hmm. She's the only person who can save uh, France. And this doesn't come from her own hubris. It comes from no. the voices from heaven that she was that she was told. So they get there and they're staying. And so Charles VII, um, of course, sends his advisors to go talk to Joan. Right. And his advisors are all treacherous, duplicitous, they're just they're just in it for themselves. They know France is lost. They just want to see how they can cover themselves. So she knows better than to tell them the truth. So she stands firm with them. And instead of all being lost, Charles VII is actually impressed with that and now invites her closer. So now she's moved into the castle uh, and with, with uh, under some special uh, care of some of the ladies. Mm -hmm. So she's actually impressed Charles with her strength. But she still hasn't met him. Oh, she so, hasn't met him yet. Yeah, he's hearing about her. It's kind of spread far and wide because another thing we have to remember is there was the legend of the maid from Lorraine, you know, that France was going to be lost by a woman, which everybody recognized mm -hmm. was uh, Queen Isabel of Bavaria, who signed the Treaty of Troy, and, you know, basically disavowing her son, Charles, and giving, uh, you know, France over to uh, England. And that France would be won by a, a, a maid, a maiden, and from the Lorraine. And Joan comes from an area generally from the Lorraine uh, area. So this has been spreading far and wide. So we're, you know, the word has gotten out. But now you can imagine the people sitting there, you know, the Dauphin Charles. And I refer to him as the Dauphin because Joan always referred to him as the Dauphin. Yeah. He referred to him as the king after he was uh, crowned. Crowned. 
But uh, you can imagine them sitting there going, you know, this this is ridiculous. I mean, it's easy for us because we would go, um, wow, you should listen to Joan of Arc because she's really great. They didn't know that. There's just some young lady from from the boondocks, right. from the hicks has come. And so naturally, there's a lot of skepticism. Yes. So, so then I, there's going to be a reception. And before she can go to the reception, the queen, or well, I should say the mother-in-law, Charles VII's mother-in-law, uh, wants to prepare her like a proper princess and, uh, you know, have have fancy ball dresses and whatnot made for her. But Joan declines. And, and I thought that was a, a yeah, lovely part the, of the, story. The, mother, the mother-in-law believe, mm-hmm. is, is impressed with her. Yes. Uh, the mother-in-law is impressed with her, yes, and wants to dress her properly. Joan is very straightforward and, and, um, and modest. Now, there, there are people, if you look at some of the historical accounts, there are people who uh, crit- will criticize Joan and say that when later when she gets into battle, that she seems to enjoy having the fine armor and the fine mm-hmm. clothing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that later. But I think there's a, there's a reason for that. And it's not a lack of of modesty or, 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 or prudence. We'll get to that later, but, uh, but, yeah. you know, we see in this story that she's very, um, she's very straightforward, uh, very modest. And, and Joan gives all the appearance of being someone with, um, doesn't, she doesn't seem to speak like the rest of us do just to hear herself talk. Yeah. She's not a chatterbox. She speaks with meaning and determination. I, I get the impression she's very sober in in the sense that, you know, she really understands uh, the importance of things and is not there for idle chatter. She's really no. there on a mission. And, yeah. and and I think that carries over from her childhood. I think the way that she was raised, she was a good, a good Catholic young lady was to, to be judicious in what you say, which is probably a good lesson for all of us. Oh, indeed. It's, you know, as the, as James talks in the, in, in the Bible, that the tongue can be the, you know, it can mm-hmm. be the thing that leads you off track pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think she was always rather judicious and careful. But remember, she was a delightfully nice person to be around. And what we're going to also see in a minute is that she has a good sense of humor. And be careful about how you take a swing at Joan because she can send it right back. Absolutely. <laughs> and so and that's what we see at this um, this big event where where Joan has been invited to uh, um to meet the king, whom she who she's never met before, uh, yeah, and so they well, decide to play a little trick. Yeah, and this is a legendary story. This is uh, true. It's recorded in all in all the events of uh, of Joan of Arc, and that is that uh, she goes in. Now, again, listeners, we have to remember: no internet, no Twitter, no fate, no, uh, no selfies. On, yeah, no newspaper. <laughs> no, there are no photographs. No one knows what anyone looks like. If you if you've never met people uh, 300 miles away, you don't know what they look like. There are no pictures. And so she goes in and they, uh, they decide to play uh, a trick. Here comes a young peasant girl and they, they, they go in and what Charles does is he dresses himself as just a plain person, just a regular member. Now, okay, you go in there, you know, probably a hundred or more people. It's a very large reception. There are a lot of people. It's a re- it's a reception for the Dauphin, the future supposed king of 
of France. So there's there's a lot of sort of the air of aristocracy and and you know upper class and you know all the all the pretensions that that we run into in society. Everyone acting like they're really big. So this whole environment. This isn't just a meeting with him alone. So there's this whole party in this environment. He dresses as just one of the regular members of of the, you know, of the party. Someone else then dresses as you know the the dauphin as the future king and sits on the throne mm-hmm. and how would you know how, what would you i mean i wouldn't know i would just walk up and you know give my, <laughs> yeah curtsy and say well hi king and let's talk we, we would have no idea of knowing now interestingly and this is truly miraculous people people have gone to great pains to try to secularize this and figure out ways and the the, the stories are just so fantastic the stories of people who don't believe in supernatural are, are more fantastic than yeah. the supernatural when they try to explain this. It's I always call it mental acrobat. Yeah, mental you acrobat. You really have to like twist your brain to try to make it work. Right. She, so she walks, she walks in and they take her up to the throne. She just stares at the person. She never acknowledges. She never, you know, and she turns around. And she looks through the crowd. Now, again, we're talking 100, 200, however many people are there. And she looks through the crowd and she turns away from the throne and she walks over through the crowd to a man dressed just as a normal person. And she kneels before him and she, and she doesn't complain about being tricked. So that she just kneels and says, Dauphin, I'm here and he, so she literally knew instantaneously that this was not the king. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like she talked and then kind of suspected it and then figured it out. She knew instantaneously. As soon as she looked at the person, in her mind, she said, this yeah. is not him. Although I got the impression in Twain's um, telling of it that she was a little bit hurt, you know, kind of like, well, why why are you guys playing tricks on me? Like, why, why do we have to go through this? <laughs> this charade? Well, you would naturally, you, yeah, you would naturally feel the frustration of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as you, as you go through, but she goes over and she kneels before the Dauphin and, uh, he says, well, what are you, what are you doing child? I'm not, I'm not the Dauphin. She says, yes, you are. Really, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> and so that resolves that. And so th- that was really the first kind of miraculous, uh, incident was the, the trickery, uh, that, that didn't work. And so now she has sort of miraculously identified, uh, Charles, the, uh, the seventh. And so that leads then to an even bigger legendary moment. And I mentioned in the last show, I said, there's something that she knows that nobody else does. And I said, I know what it is too. <laughs> I'd read it. But uh, this is the second big moment where uh, it's the revelation to Charles from Joan that turns everything around. Yeah. Charles goes from skeptical, not sure what to think. Let's play a joke on her. Let's see how she does. If she's, if she's not for real, she'll be embarrassed and we'll just uh, give her a spanking and send her home kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, miraculously she identified him. So naturally he's going to pay attention, but he's still waiting and, and, and not convinced. Now here is the critical thing. Charles, for all of his weaknesses, and he's not a real likable character to a certain degree. He's, he's weak. Yeah. He's indecisive. 
He's easily influenced, easily manipulated. He's just not that kind of strong character that you you admire. He's, he's not heroic. No, he, he's definitely not. No, he's not heroic. And uh, he will be throughout his life because of Joan again. But he, he's not at this point. But but also let's let's give him a little bit of a break in that he does seem to have a certain piety. And I don't think people really doubted his his piety uh, and his and a sense of goodness for his people. So Charles has been praying that the the Lord would reveal to him if he truly is the rightful heir of heir of France. And and the reason that this was bothering him was because his mother, Isabeau of Bavaria, uh, was notoriously, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, loose. She was known to have affairs. Uh, she, she, you know, she was known to be. Um, she did not have Joan's virtue, for she sure. She did not have Joan's virtue, in fact. And th- there was concern that Charles had. Now, imagine he's sitting there going, okay, I'm supposed to be the heir, but everything's going so badly. And even my own mother has signed a treaty disavowing me. And by the way, we're, we're just on the verge of completely being uh, overrun by England. Nothing's looking good. I wonder if really I am. What if I am a bastard child? And he really had that concern that, is it possible that I'm truly a bastard child and I'm not really destined to be the king of France? Now, here's the important thing. He's the only person who knew about that prayer. He told no one about that prayer. No one knew that this was weighing on his mind. And what he had asked was, Lord, if I'm not the heir, he said, please spare my people. You know, uh, do whatever with me, but please spare the people of France. So he had that certain sort of kindness uh, and, 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 and devotion. So he's praying this prayer. Joan comes up to him. So now he pulls her aside. She's identified him. Now he has a private audience with her. So he pulls her aside and into a separate area. And they talk. Charles walks out of that meeting. His face is lit up. He's a completely new man. He is amazed. Well, what happened in that meeting? Joan said, I know this is what you've been praying. And I'm here to tell you that you are the rightful king of France. Now imagine what that does to you. Yeah. He said, no, he's, no one knew that this was what he was praying. It was a private prayer that he had of concern. And she came after having identified him in, in the crowd. She comes and tells him, I know what your prayer is. And I'm here to tell you the answer to it. So he is duly impressed. And now he truly has, this is the turning point. Yeah. Uh, you know, that moment of, of responding and that private meeting with Charles. Mm, that's beautiful. So, yeah. But if only it were just that simple, though, for, for Joan's mission. But as we will find out, it's not. Oh, yeah. Joan, by the way, this is pretty much the real world, right? So yeah. she's uh, she's entered the world of politics, intrigue, treachery, duplicity, lying, conniving, self-interest. She's entered that world, which I just described basically most of the people around uh, Charles VII, except for one person. Mm-hmm. She does get introduced to the Duke of Alençon, yes. uh, which is part of the royal blood. And the, the, the thing with the Duke was, in, in the days of chivalry, uh, he had been captured. And his penalty was, was he had to go away and promise not to fight for like two years. 
So, so, and, and they, that's the way they did war in those days. So, and, and, a, and, a, and a man of honor would do that. So if, a man, if, if you broke that and you went into battle, that, that would be such a dishonor to you that you did that. So he was away for a couple of years or so, um, you know, taking his punishment and, and again, that's treat you're treated differently when you're part of the House Royal than if you're just a regular uh, soldier. So he comes back and Joan immediately can see that, you know, this is this is destiny. This is the Lord. Now that he, she calls it the, the more of the blood royal, the better. Mm-hmm. And so Alanson becomes one of her close confidants. And he helps train her with the, the horse riding, the, the using the lance, the whole thing. He helps train her. So that's an important meeting along with John. In a sense, he's kind of a mentor for her in the earthly realm of sort, you know, soldiery. Definitely. Definitely. So she's got the right people coming into her life. You know, as we mentioned before, John Demetz, who brought her over to Shannon, becomes a lifelong companion. Uh, The Duke of Alençon becomes a lifelong companion. So she's winning. She's winning over the right people. Now she's her friends and allies. But the people she hasn't won over, and you're, and you know, she isn't going to win over because they have malice, they have bad will, are all of Charles's advisors, and they're just people of bad will. And they're all skeptics. You know, they oh totally they they can't receive Joan into their hearts. I think it raises a profound issue, and that is, what's the difference between prudent skepticism Mm -hmm. that we really, we all have to have. I Mm -hmm. I always say, let's be fair. Wouldn't you be skeptical if this happened to you? I think most of us would prudently just say, Mm -hmm. I, I think I need to think about this a little bit, but what's the difference between that, those who are willing to receive and those who aren't. And I think it's really a matter of, of good, of goodwill. Yeah. You know, the Bible says peace on earth to, to, you know, men of goodwill. And there are people who have goodwill and people have bad will. And I think the difference between the, I think the Duke of Allenstown, everybody that came in had a certain skepticism. I, th- I think from the stories I've read, he was somewhat amused when he came in. You know, he kind of walked in, you know, you can you almost picture him kind of swaggering in part of the blood royal. He nobly took his time off from the war and now he's going to, he's getting ready to reenter the war. And he comes in and here's this young country girl who claims to be the maid from Lorraine. He's, he's, Kind of amused by that. Well, this is cute. And but then he he's won over because he's a man of goodwill. Whereas the advisors are people who are they're set. Their skepticism is based in yeah. in, in yeah. bad will and, and malice. I think it's a very profound question. It has a lot to do with how we receive grace. Yeah. Well, we're gonna let's let's pause that narration for a moment because there's another story that Twain gives us, which is just too good to pass by. So let's talk about the paladin oh. at the uh, at at the inn at the tavern. You you know how I love the paladin, <laughs> and um, again for those listeners who might just be joining us, he he is one of the fictional characters, but he's a character that Twain develops as a fictional character to tell to bring us into a true He's reality. a stand-in for us. <laughs> he's a stand-in for us. The Paladin is a blowhard. He's a he's a he's a great big guy that was a friend of Jones all during her childhood and he's all talk no action. He's a legend in his own mind and uh he's 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 a braggadocious uh, he doesn't know the truth. He 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 tells lies but he believes his own lies and and, and Twain, it's just Twain tells us he gets this um, costume that it looks, it sounds like it's something like the Three Musketeers, and he just swaggers about oh, town. Yeah, well, now, now, the group, now while Joan's in the castle, her group is over in the tavern at the hotel. 
Yeah. So they didn't all get to go over to the castle. Her group is still over in the hotel. Now, this is taking place over a number of days. So they're over there entertaining. Well, the paladin, oh, yes, he he he, he purchased this, what, Spanish... Uh, uh, cape and hat. Cape and, and hat. And <laughs> oh, and, and now, now the paladin, you can imagine, you, you've seen people, and perhaps we've even done this ourselves, he has a whole group of people there at the tavern who don't know him. And, and he can tell any story that he wants. And he's got his friends who are, can just sit there and, and chuckle. So the pal, it, is, it is a brilliantly written chapter. It doesn't just go to the point of contrasting Joan with the paladin. You know, Joan's unbelievable performance with the, the Charles, but also uh, contrasting that with the paladin. It's just a brilliantly written story. If, if you listen to how Twain, he sort of, he sort of uh, makes fun of the paladin by complimenting him because he'll talk about, well, the, you know, he's, Twain says, you know, a lot of people tell stories over and over again. And, and he said, people just get bored with them because they keep hearing the same story. But he says the paladin's ability, he says, is, is really above that. It's really beyond the normal person's ability. He improves he can tell on it with each telling so that by the 10th retelling of the story, it's it's so much more amazing and fantastical than the first. You just want well, to hear it. It's like the fisherman who's every time he tells a story, the fish gets bigger and bigger. And so the crowd is eating this up. As Twain said, they know he's not telling the truth, but they believe that he believes he's telling the truth. And they're just, you can picture this crowd just having a few beers and just roaring with laughter as the paladin, uh, a certain affection for him, but a recognition that he's kind of just one of these big talkers. And we just want to hear, and they would cheer and they say, tell us the story again. Tell us again about such and such. And he would, and, and it would be greater than his victory, his the victory, the enemy would be, uh, there'd be more of the enemy than before. His personal role would grow into how he defeated the enemy. And, 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 and so they, it was just a very delightful uh, chapter. And one of my favorite parts, too, is the paladin didn't get to go to the castle to meet with Charles. Well, word came out that Joan had this successful meeting with Charles. And so this delighted everyone. Well, the paladin now. Well, he started with, you know, he didn't get to go, but he started in his stories at night with everybody at the tavern was what I would have said if I had been there. And within a couple of days, it moved into what I did say. And he did say. When I was there and how he had taken that imposter and ripped him off the throne and was going to throw him out the window. But Joan, so it's, it's, it's a really funny story. And you have to, you have to love uh, the paladin because there's another big moment with the paladin coming up. So, I, again, I think there's this sort of this brilliant exaggeration in such a humorous way. It's almost like Mark Twain just kind of lets it rip with, I'm going to give you some Twain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you some yes. fun stuff. Yes. And, uh, but I'm going to still tell you the story. But, but the Paladin is going to come back. And we're, going to, we're going to have some more transition with the Paladin. Yeah. And to the critics of Mark Twain's story who complain that this book is unlike his others, I think this this chapter and others like it just portray Mark Twain's typical oh, his, yeah, his brilliance style, and his literary yeah. wit as much his as any other. In it all the way through. Yeah, yeah. That makes it so delightful. That's why we picked the book because it's historically <laughs> accurate, but it's it's enchanting and uh, entertaining. Yes. So, so we now 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 what we have to do is we have to move forward. So we have a couple more things we have to kind of get through here. One is that 
um, th is this the end of the story? So is Charles now convinced and gives her an army? No. A and part of it may be that prudence we talked about. Wouldn't you be prudent? Now, the other part were the treacherous advisors who are consistently, you know, why you can't really trust this. So what they what they decide to do is that she needs to be uh, questioned and sort of a mini inquisition kind of thing. Not not like a punishing inquisition, but a challenge uh, to see if she's really for real. And I think and not just for real, but to ensure, because now she has demonstrated these um, sort of miraculous um, accomplishments. But we have they, they say, well, we have to determine that she's not sent from the devil. You know, he could yeah. trick us like that. Well, I, I think it's a legitimate thing uh, to do because there is a thing the, the devil can dress as an angel of light. And uh, people think that people were so superstitious and gullible back in the Middle Ages. And they were anything but they were very aware of the trickeries of the devil and things like that. So what they do is they 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 end up sending her to um, sort of a, a group in, in Poitiers of experts of uh, the university where they like university theologians and that yeah university theologians and the and the whole thing and so they they put her through questioning and and she she just does it really reminds me of in the Bible when it says don't don't be afraid of what you'll say mm -hmm. because the Holy Spirit will give you the yes. right words and Jones really both here and later in her real Inquisition that we'll get to later she she really um, that that's really demonstrated but she does an exceptional job talking with theologians and what they can see. And they determine is that she's a very good Catholic. And in fact, uh, one of them later said that he, when he talked to her, that he wished that he, he wished he had a daughter that was like Joan of Arc, that she was such a wonderful young lady and very good Catholic, but her sense of humor comes in. So yes. there, there's one she's, particular. She's witty too. She's, oh yeah. Yeah. The, a sharp there, tongue. <laughs> there, there's, yeah, there, there's one particular um, inquisitor who's kind of arrogant and speaks with the, um, uh, what's the dialect, sort of the... the Lit, was it uh, Limber? No, that's... Limbers, it's, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's a, it's, in other words, it would be a... It would be, a, yeah. Yeah, it, it would be something that would indicate you're kind of of the sophisticated class. You know, some people talk with that sort of air and that, that accent that says that they're of the upper class. Well, that this is, this is that mm -hmm. person. So it'd be like... Oh, I thought it was the lower class. Uh, oh, he was, he thought himself to be really of the higher, oh. uh, of the, of the higher class. He was sort of an arrogant, um, um, pompous mm -hmm. kind, but he, he'd ask her and said, did, um, you know, did, well, when, when the, when the heavenly voices spoke to you, did they speak? So did they speak in French or in English? And she's like, well, what do you, you know? What do you think they spoke in French? And she said they, you know, they. She said, well, they spoke, you know, spoke French better than you do. And <laughs> and here's a man who takes great pride in his beautiful French. So ah. well, they spoke French and they spoke it better than you do. It was that kind of a response mm -hmm. that was was clever and somewhat stinging. She had no problem giving humorous comebacks uh, to people, and she also made a, the, her one of her most famous and notorious comments that are, you see often quoted is they ask her a very good question and they said, uh, if in fact this is the destiny God has for France, why do you need to have an army? Why, why, why doesn't you know, God just make it happen? And she said that, uh, you know, the, he, the helps, member, he helps who help themselves. Yeah, and I, I, the way I've always read it and I think the way that the quote really went was the men will fight, God will bring the victory. 
yeah. uh, was, is how I've always heard it. And that's a very famous saying of Jones. And so anyway, they were convinced that Poitier, they sent her back to uh, the Dauphin and said, you know, she's a really good Catholic and get, basically gave the blessing and said, you have every reason uh, to trust her. So now things are starting to roll. So she's miraculously shown her uh, her capabilities to Charles. She's answered the question, which obviously changed his life. So, I, and, and again, there's a certain profundity to that. When someone touches you, she touched him very deeply and personally in a very personal way when she answered that question for him. And I, and I can say in my, in my own life that she did that to me. She touched me in a very personal way that only I can really relate to just like Charles could only relate to. And, and that happened. And then he had her tested. And, it, and it's very similar to us in that when we have these inspirations, you know, what do we do? We test them against our faith. Mm-hmm. So we, we test them against what we know of our Catholic faith. And, and we do very much a similar type process. Well, now she's, she's won and Charles is going to give her the, um, the army. So in the next chapter, then she goes uh, to get her. She has to put her staff together. She has to put her staff together. And now she, she comes across, okay, there's another very important story. Legendary was the sword of St. Catherine. I mean, sort the the sword of. uh, uh, St. Catherine. Yeah. It was at at St. Catherine of Fearbois church. And I said last time when they stopped it, at Fearball that we were going to come back there. This is another miraculous and legendary story was that she said that her sword that she's to carry is buried behind the altar at St. Catherine of Fearball's and go get it. Nobody had any idea about this. And they went behind the altar and they dug and there was a, a rusty sword, a rusty sword. Now they've, they've created legends about it where, where the rust fell off and it glowed and all that kind of stuff. I doubt if that really happened, but they, but they, they brought it to her. Now the, the legend holds now uh, Twain says that the legend was that it was Charlemagne's sword. Uh, I've heard other stories say it was uh, Charles Martel's who would be mm-hmm. what his grandfather's mm-hmm. Charles Martel's sword, but it was, it was a famous, you know, French um, uh, leader. And so they bring the sword to her. That was another miracle. Mm-hmm. And then she also has her standard made the flag the flag in tour. And, and, and that's going to be another big thing because it, it's been often talked about. And I've even read books about her standard. Uh, it's, it's a reflection. Her standard that she carried was a reflection of Jesus holding the world with the blessed Virgin. And then all of the, the people and the soldiers and everybody sort of hovering underneath kind of the mantle. And, and it was a depiction of an understanding that the church militant and the church triumphant are one church. Mm-hmm. And so she had this this incredible standard. And that, that takes made. a lot of theological insight again for this, yeah. you know, unlettered young girl, uh, or unlettered something. young person. But uh, yeah, I've I've read some things about how uh, uh, profound her standard is because later in her Inquisition, they're going to ask her, and she's going to yeah. say, "Well, I, I don't know anything except that it's all one church." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so that so the. the She's got the sword now, and she has the uh, standard. Uh, uh, Blois, I believe that's the correct way to say it, um, B-L-O-I-S, is the town that's about a third of the way up the river, the Loire, toward Orléans. And that's going to be the staging place where she's going to use as a depot to uh, get the army and to resupply the army and, and things like that. 
So she goes to Blois and um, and starts stage number. So Joan is now the the maid. She is now the leader of. She's the, the supreme commander. She's the supreme of commander. Armed forces. Right. She has the royal blood and heroes of previous wars reporting to her. Now there's going to be conflicts down the road. Um, French captains being who they are, they're going to have a little difficulty in, in understanding their proper place as we're going to see down the road. They don't always understand their, and Joan will, Joan will make sure they understand their proper place. So we'll get to those stories uh, uh, later. She now has her army. So, so there's one more story with the paladin at this point, because as, as we said, she's assembling her staff. And I just want to say as, um, you know, as a retired Navy commander, your staff is really important. Having the right people in each of those positions is essential because you rely on them. There's no way that you can perform every act of leadership and you need the right people, the right advisors. Um, those people are going to carry out um, your your, your orders. So, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's what she's doing. And that's where we do sort of end up in the, in the final chapter. This chapter is the most personal for me um, because this is the chapter that defined everything I was going to do from 14 years ago until today when I was reading this. And this is where she's putting together her, her household, her military household. And of course, you know, as Mark Twain, as the sewer is talking, he's like, well, of course, there probably won't be any room for us because we've got all these royal people. Or her friends from the village that she can yeah, yeah, poor little, you know, and don't be, don't worry because we're just the poor little friends from the village. Well, of course, Joan doesn't forget them and she includes them all in her household. And they go through to everyone who's been included and everybody has a place. And then so somebody says, what about the paladin? The paladin appears well, to be Well, he didn't even there. go because he didn't yeah. think, he, he was yeah. certain that... No, yeah, well, he had offended her in the past. He was not going to have a place. In yeah, deep inside, he was honest enough to know that he had offended her in the past. He was sort of just a um, um, a blustering person, and that there would be no place for him in reality uh, in in this. And she calls for the paladin, and this was the quote that I think really actually did change my life. And the 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 quote that she uh, talked to this is Joan talking to the paladin after she calls for him as she's assembling her house and she gives him the standard. Mm. The paladin is going to actually be the standard bearer. And Joan says to the paladin, I watched you on the road, meaning from Dom Remy to Shinan during through enemy territory where he jumped and hidden bushes, climbed up climbed, the tree yeah. and climbed trees when the enemy came, even though he bragged about defeating the enemy. <laughs> She said, I watched you on the road. You began badly, but improved. Of old, you were a fantastic talker. But there is a man in you, and I will bring it out. And then Mark Twain says, it was fine to see the paladin's face light up when she said, will you follow where I lead? And that is that changed my life because I was thinking about starting to write, starting to put together devotional ideas and and start putting my devotion that I was starting to build toward St. Joan and St. Therese, which we'll talk about. And I was thinking about starting to write. And I picked up the book 
And I read those specific lines. Now, remember, the paladin drew me into the story, and I was identifying myself with the paladin. I felt Joan saying those words to me. Wow. And when I read, will you follow where I lead? I felt that was her speaking to me. And without reading another word, I put the book down. I went to my computer and I started writing and I've been writing and and my life's been transformed through that writing process for 14 years. Wow. So, so it, it it really is, I I, I couldn't wait till we got to this part. In a very real sense, Walter, I think that was your call to adventure. It, oh, it, it, it absolutely And meeting was. the mentor and all of that rolled up in one. It, it, because when I heard those words, will you follow where I lead? I read directly into my own yeah. uh, soul. And so, yes, that's really the most personal aspect of the story to me. And um, wow, sort of began that transformation with me. Well, I, I think that's a, a great point for us to go ahead and pause the the story again for this week and bring in those reflective questions that we ask each week to help, to help us enter into that story in some way, in whatever way is meaningful um, for our lives. Well, why don't you start with yours, Amy? Okay. Well, I, I, the question that I asked was, um, I was thinking about how Joan faced her inquisitors at Poitiers. And so my question is, have you ever felt outnumbered by your opposition? Describe this experience and how you responded. Excellent. I think we probably all have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent question. Well, mine um, is, have you ever been given a position of honor or responsibility that ennobled you? Describe how that made you feel and the impact it had on your life. And the reason I'm asking that, of course, is if you remember last time I challenged you to look deeply at how the paladin might be reflected in you as much mm-hmm. as we don't want to admit it. Do we have a little bit of paladin in us? But now, if you recall what we just talked about, the paladin was brought and ennobled by Joan. So she's he's lifted up by Joan in spirit and nobility. And obviously that has a huge impact. So I'm asking us now to go the other direction and say, um, have you had a moment like that? And, and what, what was that? What was it like? What did it do I, to you? I love that question. <laughs> and, and I And I love where it takes us from, you know, from where, you know, from wherever we're starting in this journey to giving us a vision of, of something greater and noble, something that we can strive for. That's yeah, so it's, it's truly pointing to yeah. that elevate and not just, I think you raised a great point, Amy. It's not just the great greatness of Joan, which we are talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's how she, by the grace of God and through her role yeah. in the kingdom of God, how she helps lift us. Yes. And, and she, she is an icon for us in the sense of, you know, all of these things don't just, as you said, they don't just end in Joan or, you know, whoever, whatever saint we're, we are venerating. They, their lives point us to Christ. It, it's, it is that it's Christ is the source of this. Yes. Building his kingdom and building his community. And so it's, it's the Holy Spirit, the grace of God working through uh, the saints. And I'm always reminded of the saying and, you know, in the Bible, when the, the Lord says, uh, you know, good and worthy servant, you know, come into the kingdom of heaven. You did well in small things. I'm now going to give you large things. Well, Jones work can hardly be considered small to us, but in the scheme of things, everything is small when compared to heaven. And so now she, perhaps she does have a role, uh, having done faithfully on earth, she does have a role to ennoble the rest of us in a similar way. 
Absolutely. Well, Walter, it's been another exciting chapter in Joan's story. I've really enjoyed discussing this with you, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed hearing it. Well, I told you it's going to start rolling, and it's definitely starting to roll yeah. now. She she yeah. just went she just went from young girl from Dom Remy to now the Supreme Commander of the French yeah. Army. So yeah. that's, that's and, pretty, yeah, pretty. That's crazy. It's <laughs> crazy and wild. So, and it's only going to get more more uh, in in intensify. The action is going to intensify as we roll into next week. So speaking of which, our homework for next week, if you've been following along with us in the reading, we are going to pick it up a little bit. We're still in book two. We're going to read chapters 11 through 20 in book two. So uh, get your get your reading going. It's exciting though. It's fast moving. Uh, I think you'll, you'll get through it fairly quickly. Great. And so... Yeah. Thank, you, well, thank you for joining us, Walter. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and remember to embrace the journey because you were born for this. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. Everyone Sang by Siegfried Sassoon. Everyone suddenly burst out singing, and I was filled with such delight as prison birds must find in freedom winging wildly across the white orchards and dark green fields, on, on, and out of sight. Everyone's voice was suddenly lifted, and beauty came like the setting sun. My heart was shaken with tears, and horror drifted away. Oh, but everyone was a bird, and the song was wordless, the singing will never be done.